you would, take a copy of God's Word this morning, turn open to the Gospel of Matthew, and we have hit the final chapter, Matthew chapter 28, so if you'll turn there this morning, using a pew Bible, it's there on page 835 of the pew Bible, Matthew chapter 28. This morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. In the Reformation, the great <clears throat> slogan actually during the Reformation was, was after darkness, light. After darkness, light. Plus tenebrous lux was the Latin, after darkness, light. And it was a reference to the fact that the medieval church had been trapped in darkness, had wandered away from the truth, and now God was showing His light in the truth of the Scriptures. It also referenced this passage that we're dealing with this morning, after darkness light, post tenebrous lux, that is, this is the way that God works. Christ died and was buried, darkness, and then He rose, light, after darkness light. Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. Let's pray before we open the Word this morning. Father, even as we just sung, so we pray as well that You would speak to us this morning, that You would shine the light of Your truth into the very recesses of our soul, that we would find that where there is darkness, that your truth is taking hold. We're thankful that you are a God who speaks, and we cry out to you yet again, speak to us, O Lord, as you have promised by your word. It is our cry right now, and we pray, O Son, that you would intercede for us, O Spirit, that you would groan forth on our behalf, we might hear from you, our triune God. In the holy name of Christ, the living word's name we pray, amen. Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10, this is the holy, inerrant, sufficient word of God. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for He has risen, as He said. Come, see the place where He lay. Then go quickly and tell His disciples that He is risen from the dead. And behold, He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings, 
And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. But the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. There are a lot of things that vie for your and my attention today. There are a lot of things that that vie for the church's attention today. And I confess that it concerns me, I'm concerned about what the church is focused on. I'm concerned about what you and I are focused on. Uh, to put it maybe more negatively, one of the greatest threats to the church is a lack of focus on the right thing, the right thing. John Webster, a recently deceased theologian who has been helpful in this regard, said it this way. He said, perhaps more than anything else, what can eat away at the vitality and persuasiveness of the church's mission is the attempt to be and do and say far too many things. And so failed to be and to do and to say the one thing that is essential to the church, which only the church can say and which above all things the church must say, namely that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, that he is exalted at the right hand of the Father. And he is the one in whose presence we and the whole world must stand. That's the great message of the church. That is to be the great focus of the Christian. That is to be the great focus of the church. There are so many things that vie for yours and my attention, yours and my focus. Good things. But this is the necessary thing. On this Reformation Sunday in which we celebrate Martin Luther and the beginnings of the Reformation, it's helpful, I think, to remind ourselves that the medieval church that Luther was responding to and the rest of the Reformers would respond to, that it had wandered, it had lost its focus. It was a church that was very busy about very many things. It was a church that had incredible strength. It was a church that had a lot of cultural influence. It was a church that had a lot of power. It was a church that had a lot of interest in what was happening in culture and society. It threw around its weight. We could, would say in our terms today that the church was an influencer, maybe even the greatest influencer in the Middle Ages. And yet, it was a church that had lost a right focus. It was focused on the wrong thing. When Peter preaches at Pentecost, he preaches about, quote, this Jesus 
And then he says, whom God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. When Paul is speaking about, as we spoke about last week in 1 Corinthians 15, where he is summarizing the apostolic message and what is the gospel, that great passage where he is saying, this is what we communicate, this is what we preach as the church, this is what we are about, he says this, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. In Revelation 4 and 5, when we get a glimpse of what it looks like in heaven for the church gathered together and all the saints are before the throne and you have the cherubim and the seraphim and all the angels that are there and you have all the creatures that are bowing before the throne in Romans 4 and 5, what is it that they are focused upon? What glory is it that they are ascribing to the one who is seated on, on the throne? They speak of him being a lamb that was slain. And then they speak of him being this one who reigns forever and ever as the living one who lives forever and ever seated enthroned above. The church must say what only it can say. Jesus Christ the very Son of God who came down from heaven and was incarnated into this world, who took on human flesh. He died, he was buried, he was resurrected. That is our focus. We're the only ones that can say that. And we must say that. That's our focus. Everything else flows from that. First, I want you to see from our text this morning that Jesus' resurrection was an historical event. Jesus' resurrection was an historical event. When we observe the death of Jesus upon the cross, we saw that it was at a particular time, on a particular day, in a particular place, and then that there were particular eyewitnesses that witnessed his death. And now when we come to the resurrection, Matthew is going to highlight the same thing. He's going to say, look, there was a particular place, this grave, on this particular day, at this particular time, this morning, that Jesus was resurrected, and there were particular eyewitnesses to this event. What Matthew is doing is he is setting up for us and he's saying, look, this is a true historical event. Jesus died. It's a true historical event. Jesus was resurrected. And he's doing this in the passage. He's tying these two things together so you and I don't miss it. And he does this with words. He uses similar language for both historical events. He uses the phrase, and behold. It's a way of conveying shock. Surprise! He uses that both at the crucifixion and at the resurrection. At the crucifixion, in verse 51, he speaks of, Behold, 
as he talks about the crucifixion of Jesus, and he does so here in verse 2 in reference to the resurrection of Jesus. In both the crucifixion, we have an earthquake that occurs. And then at the resurrection, we again have an earthquake that occurs. We see at both the resurre- at, the, at the foot of the cross, there is awe and there is fear. And then we see the same thing here in the resurrection account. There is awe and there is fear. We see the same eyewitnesses at the crucifixion, these women that are off, distant a little bit from the cross, but looking on and they see Jesus die. It is these same women that are now eyewitnesses of his resurrection. He's tying these two things together so that you and I see that this was a historical event. Jesus died upon the cross. This was a historical event. Jesus was resurrected from the grave. As we open our passage, we see these women again, these women that were at the cross, now at the tomb. They are amazing figures to me in the Scriptures. They desperately loved their Lord. They desperately loved their Master. We have Mary Magdalene. We have Mary, the mother of James and John. Uh, We are told in Uh, Mark's gospel that Salome was also there. Luke seems to reference the fact that there were more than just these three, that there were a group of women that were coming to the tomb on this day. It was two days after Jesus had been buried. So this is the morning of the third day, and they're coming with spices. You remember, if you think back to last week, that Joseph of Arimathea uh, had asked for Jesus' body, And we're told in other Gospels that Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee and had come to believe in the Lord Jesus, had brought a bunch of spices to uh, Joseph of Arimathea. But you'll remember that there was limited time to get Jesus buried before the sun went down and they would be violating the Sabbath. And so it was surely a rush job that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are doing when they pack around Jesus' body these spices, and maybe the women had some semblance of this, maybe they knew this, or maybe they didn't know that spices had been applied to Jesus' body. But what happens after two days in the Middle East with the heat that is there, there would have been decaying that was already happening, and there would have been a stench and a smell, and so you would pack these good-smelling things around a body so that that wasn't the main thing that was wafting from a tomb. It was a way of honoring the individual. What I love about these women is that they are headed to the tomb. They are headed there in just this love and this zeal for their Lord and their Master, and yet it seems that they haven't thought through it. They're just moved by love, by zeal. Uh, I was reading recently an account of a a uh, Civil War soldier's wife who her husband was taken prisoner of war and she had heard about it. And so she traveled thousands of miles into the South to go and be near her husband. And it didn't occur to her till she got to the prisoner of war camp that she didn't know how she would get in. How would she ever see him? But she just wanted to be near him. And so these women, they're just motivated by their love. They're not thinking through it. They're just headed to the tomb. And as they get to the tomb in their zeal, they find that the Lord has already solved their problem that they didn't even know that they had. It's often this way, isn't it, when we look back on 
things in our lives. The Lord has solved things that we didn't even know were problems. But the stone has been rolled out of place, and now the opening to this tomb is wide open. Now, it's not what you and I first think when we see that the stone has been rolled away. What we think is, well, the stone was rolled away so that Jesus could get out. But it was not rolled away so Jesus could get out. It was rolled away so that the women could get in. It's very clear in the Scriptures that the Lord Jesus, He had the authority to lay down His own life, as He said, and to take it up again. He didn't need any angel to roll a rock out of place so that He could emerge from the grave. No, He walked through that rock with His resurrected body. And it seems like John is trying to point that out to you and I when he talks about the grave linen clothes. Because in his gospel, when he talks about these clothes that Jesus was buried in, he says that they remained in their place. That is, just as Jesus had been laying there in those clothes, they were undisturbed. Because why? Because he passed through those clothes in his glorified, resurrected body. And so, in his glorified, resurrected body, he goes through that rock. This rock is just rolled away so that now these women can go in. And that's what the angel says to them when he appears there. You not just have, don't just have this rock rolled away. You have this angel, this messenger that is sent to them, this beautiful sight, this gleaming white, as if it is lightning angel that is looks this way because he has just been in the presence of God and has been in the presence of heavenly glory, and he is reflecting that as now he is sitting on this rock because his job is done. And the guards fall down in fear, and the women come up to him, and as they approach, he greets them, and he says to them, do not be afraid. They're afraid as they see this, this heavenly glory before them. Do not be afraid, for I know what you seek, Jesus who was cru crucified. He is not here, for He has risen. He's risen. Here's the focus. Here's what you're to be focused on. He has risen. Here is the message. He has risen. Now, how are you to know, women, that he is risen? Well, the angel presents some evidence. He says, come, look, I've moved the stone. Look inside. He's not here. Why is he doing this? He's saying, look, make no mistake, Matthew is telling us, this is a historical event. There are eyewitnesses to this reality. Jesus rose from the grave. Here are some eyewitnesses. I've named them for you. Here is Mary Magdalene. Here is Mary, the mother of James and John. You can go and ask them. It's interesting that it would be these women that are the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. If you were making up a story as if it was untrue and making up this account, you wouldn't have done this in the first century. We talked about this last week, but women were considered second-class citizens, and their word wasn't trusted, and them being the first eyewitnesses, you wouldn't have made up this story if it wasn't true. Why is it reported this way? Because this is historical fact. 
Jesus was raised, and these women were the first eyewitnesses. Not only were they the first eyewitnesses, but they were sent out as the first proclaimers of this truth. The angel sends them out and says, go and tell the rest of the disciples this. Listen, you wouldn't make this up either. Who's going to trust their testimony? And why is it that they have to be the first proclaimers of this truth? Is because of what we said last week. All the male disciples are hiding. The ones that are going to be the leaders in the church are hiding. If you were making up a story, you don't make it up this way. Why is it that they are the first witnesses? And why is it that they are the first heralds of this gospel truth? It's because this is historical fact. Fact. It's a historical event. You'll notice from what I read earlier from 1 Corinthians 15, that great passage where Paul is summarizing the gospel message, he will do it in even more detail. Where he will point out that not only were there eyewitnesses to this resurrection that were these women, but he will say, listen, he also appeared to the rest of the 11 disciples. He also appeared to James, the brother of Jesus. He also appeared to Cephas, that is Peter. He's naming people. And then he says, he also appeared to me, last of all, as one untimely born. Why is he naming names? So that you can go and ask him. Saying, look, Corinthians, there's eyewitnesses to this. It's true historical fact. You can go ask him. Say, so, well, maybe it's a figment of their imagination. You can get a couple people together, get a couple women together to say we've seen something. You can get Cephas, Peter, and Luke, and others together, and James and John, and get them together and say that they saw something. But that's why Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 15, did you catch it? He said, he also appeared to 500 at one time. And he says, many of them are still living. Now listen, in a court of law, if you and I are presenting a case, and we bring in one witness, okay, you bring in two witnesses, you can question what they saw, they actually saw, but you bring in 500 witnesses that all say, we saw the same thing at the same time, verdict, done, historical fact, we know that to be true. You can go ask them, Paul's saying. Some of them are still living. Go check it out. Historical fact, historical event. Second, let us understand that the focus of the church is the bodily resurrection of the person of Jesus. The focus of the church is the bodily resurrection of the person of Jesus. This is what matters, the person. There's a reason that it's not just that stone that's rolled away. There's a reason that there's also an angel there. Because you see, it wouldn't really matter if the stone had just been rolled away and the women had walked in and they had seen an empty tomb. That wouldn't have mattered because the question would have been, what happened to the body of Jesus? I want you to understand that the empty tomb is not the focus. The empty tomb in and of itself, it doesn't prove anything. And the New Testament never makes the claim that the empty tomb proves the resurrection. It's the resurrection that gives meaning to the empty tomb. 
The resurrection is the focus. As one theologian said, he said, it's not that someone believes in Jesus' resurrection and now finds an empty tomb to confirm that belief. It's rather that they have found an empty tomb and are offered the startling and totally unexpected explanation that Jesus has been raised. The resurrection interprets the tomb, not the tomb, the resurrection. And this makes, this is an important point, this is... Why make this point? Theologians will make this point over and over. And it's because of this. Because the writers of the New Testament, they're not so much concerned with a place. They're not so much concerned with a thing. They're concerned with a person. It's the person. An empty tomb is not the center of our faith, but rather the one who rose from the empty tomb. The resurrection is the focus. It is the resurrection of the person of Christ that is the great, monumental, life-changing, historical fact. And it is to be the focus of the church. And it's to be the focus of the Christian life. That there is one who rose. This is what matters, not a thing, not an event, not an idea, not an ethic, a person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, let us understand why this is the focus. Why is that the focus? Why is it the person of Christ being raised that is the focus of the church and of the Christian? Why is this so significant? Well, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And why would he say such a thing as this? And the answer is because the resurrection of Christ is the great seal of God that claims that all that Christ said about himself is in fact true. All that he claimed about himself is here ratified, is here vindicated. Jesus said an awful lot of things about himself. He will say to the Jewish leaders, if you remember, he will say to them when they are looking for a sign, they will say, well, give us a sign that you are the Christ, the Son of God. He said, oh, I'll give you one sign. The sign is that as, Jew, uh, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, so I will be in the belly of the earth for three days, and I will rise after three days. That's the only sign. This is the sign to you that I am the Son of God. I am what I claim to be. Jesus is the true Son of God. It's confirmed by the resurrection. Paul says in Romans 1 that Jesus was declared the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus will claim throughout his ministry that he is the Son of God. He will say, I came down from heaven. He will pray to the Father, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had in your presence before the world began. He will say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He will say, I and the Father are one. That is blasphemy if it's not true. 
And you remember this is the accusation that the Jews bring against him, and this is the charge that they bring him on trial for. They will say he blasphemed God. How? Because he said, I am. And they pick up stones to stone him. He's using that divine name, Yahweh, and he's attributing it to himself. He says, before Abram was, I am. And they pick up stones to stone him because he's blaspheming. But you see, the resurrection says all those claims are true. Because God doesn't honor a blasphemer. But he raises him from the grave. And it's a seal that everything that this one claimed to be as the very Son of God, it is true. The resurrection is a spotlight that illumines Jesus and says all that this man said was true. Vindicated. It's more than that. It's not merely light, it's also heat. It brings warmth to the soul because it is a great confirming seal to those that are in Christ that all, all, all of our enemies have been defeated. That final enemy, death, which is the great enemy that takes from all, that even that was defeated by our Savior. As he triumphs over it in his resurrection. Matthew tells us the women quickly departed the tomb with fear and great joy. That's appropriate. And while on their way, Jesus suddenly appears to them. And uh, it is a wonderful little piece of this passage where he greets them. He says greetings to them. And then their response is immediate. They fall on their face and they worship him. Why? Because they know what it means. Our Lord and our Master is God of God. He triumphed over the grave. And then they they cling to him. They cling to his his feet. He has literal physical feet that they are holding to. Why? Because he was raised from the grave bodily. It is his body that is there. And they are clinging to his feet. What I love is what Jesus says to them. He says to them, do not be afraid. say, what right do they have to receive that? Do not be afraid. And it's because of this, because he has triumphed over all of their enemies. What right do these women, though they have been incredible women of faith, they have have courageous faith, they are still sinners. What right do they have to cling to the physical, glorified, perfect body of the God-man. How can they touch the holy? What right do they have? And Jesus' answer is they have every right. 
because I've triumphed over all of their enemies. I've paid for their sin. I have washed them clean. There is no guilt for them. They have no enemy that hasn't been slain. So you can cling to me. Don't be afraid. Maybe though what I love more than anything about this passage think, oh, there's so much good in this passage. Yeah, you get angels, you get rocks rolling, you get earthquakes. But what I love is what he says to the women when he sends them out. He tells them to go and to share this good news about his resurrection with the disciples. And he says of those disciples, he says, go and tell did you catch it? Incredibly kind, gracious. Should have stir, stirred your soul kind of language. Go and tell my brothers. These are men that have abandoned him. Men that have forsaken him. Men that are hiding. knows the weakness and the frailty of his people and he uses familial language when he speaks about her going. The women go to my brothers and tell them I'm going to appear to them too. The line of the tribe of Judah is a, a great lamb to those who are his. He's triumphed over all our foes, including our sin. A few applications. Dear Christians, let's keep our focus on the resurrection. You help me, I help you, we help one another. The church can be, the church can do, and the church can say so many things. But this is what we must be. We must be witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. This is what we must do. We must live our lives in light of the resurrection of Christ. This is what we must say. Jesus rose from the grave. The Son of God came down from heaven, came into this world, lived as a man, suffered for our sake, died upon a cross, was buried, and guess what? He rose from the grave after three days. That's what we need to be saying. So many things we are talking about, so many things that we are occupied with, so many things that we are focused on as a church, as Christians in this world, as people, and a lot of good things, but this is the necessary thing. Oh, to be talking about this more with one another. To be proclaiming this more to the world around us. This is what it needs. We would all be the better for it. Second, every one of you in this room has the greatest possible testimony you could receive that Jesus is who he said he was, that he was the Son of God, that he is the Son of God. He wants you to look to him in faith. He wants you to know this everlasting joy that now these women, it says that they have joy and now they're going to be carried in that joy all through the rest of their life and all into eternity. 
He wants you to know the joy that those of us in this room that have faith in Christ have and will have for all of eternity. And you have the greatest of all witnesses that what he said is true. That what he claimed to be, he is. What greater truth or evidence could you have than the resurrection? If he rode in the sky and God said, Jesus equals Son of God in the sky, we'd find a way to say, ah, I think that's a meteorological kind of phenomenon that's happened. We'd find a way. If you had a vision, you say, ah, just if he had given me a vision, if the Father was in the vision and he's pointing to the Son and he says, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. You'd say, well, I don't know all my cognitive senses were there in the moment. If you heard a voice from heaven like they did at the baptism or the transfiguration that said, this is my beloved son, do all that he tells you to do. Say, so I'm not quite sure. Maybe my ears were playing tricks on me. But you see, he does that which is absolutely irrefutable, that which is absolutely unrepeatable, that which is inimitable. He raises his son from the grave. He who said, I will lay down my life and I will pick it up again in three days. He triumphs over the enemy that every single living creature has. Every single man, woman, and child shall experience death. He triumphs over that and no one can triumph over that except God. And he triumphs over that. There's no greater testimony he can give you. Will you believe? Death was overcome. Will you believe? What are you looking for? What is it? There's nothing better. Nothing more that can be given. Will you believe? Finally, Dear Christian, be comforted in knowing that all your enemies, all your enemies have no hold on you. Oh, we so often need to remind ourselves of this. We so often need to remind one another of this in conversations, in praying with and for each other, in preaching and teaching. Have he triumphed over all of our enemies? We need that. You and I need to be reminded that when we're in the midst of it, it just feels like trial after trial after trial. It feels like th these trials couldn't get any more severe than what I'm experiencing right now. We need to remind ourselves, and we need to remind each other, no, these trials come to an end. They'll come to an end because our Lord and Savior rose from the grave. He conquered all the troubles of this life. They'll come to an end. And you and I lose a loved one, and we are putting that loved one into the ground or standing there at that graveside or hear those words of committal, and it, they death, they sink into the grave, and it 
feels as though death has taken them from us and it has had the last say. You remind yourself, no. You remind one another, no. Death doesn't have the last say. We have a resurrected Lord. He has the last say. And you and I, and our bodies are deteriorating and we experience these aches and these pains of getting older. You just can't think like you used to. Remember things like you used to. Walk like you used to. Even talk like you used to. Remind yourself and we remind one another, that flesh doesn't have the last say. No. We have a resurrected Savior. He has the last say. That enemy's been defeated. When you and I feel the weight of sin, it feels like I can't, I can't kill this thing. It keeps reappearing. I hate this sin and it feels as though it is controlling me and it is dominating me and I am under its dominion. No, we remind ourselves and remind one another in accountability. No, sin no longer has dominion over you. Why? Because we have a resurrected Savior. When our adversary, when Satan comes to you and he ties up your mind and your heart and he says, oh, you are so unworthy. Do you remember what you did last night? Do you remember what you did last week? Do you see how little you've progressed in Christ over the last year, over the last 10 years? He wants no part of you. You're on your way to hell. No, you remind yourself, the guilt of sin, hell, Satan, it has no claim on me because I have a resurrected Savior that has lain all my foes. Martin Luther, as only Luther could say it, the great reformer said it this way. He said, when the devil throws your sin in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, you tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Why? Because he lives lives. We'll be there. We'll be singing in glory to all of the rest of the saints that have gone before us, that will come after us with all the angels and the archangels and the seraphim and the cherubim and those weird-eyed creatures. I'm going to close with thinking about that last Sola, sola dea gloria, glory to God alone. It, it's interesting in those scenes in Revelation 4 and 5 where you have this, where you have this heavenly assembly that is ascribing glory to God, glory to Christ. There are always two things that are highlighted. He's the lamb that was slain. He died, true historical fact. 
And he is the one that reigns and lives forevermore. True historical fact. He died. Jesus the Christ died. Oh, but after darkness comes light, he was raised. And he lives forevermore. Revelation 4 and 5. This is the song that they are singing. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Same with a loud voice. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and they worshiped him. Sola Dea Gloria. Glory to God alone who triumphs over all of our enemies, including death. This lamb that was slain, who now was raised and now sit, is seated, enthroned on high and rules over all. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise this morning for conquering all of our enemies and all of your enemies and laying them as a footstool beneath the feet of our risen Savior. We give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, he who suffered and died and was buried, who was raised on the third day ascended into heaven and is seated above and even now lives forever to intercede for us. Glory to the Lamb that was slain who now reigns on high. We give you praise, our Lord and our God. In Christ's holy name, amen.